I want to change and give up who I am for who I could become. Because if we're going to be here, let's make it worth our time. That began for me what was sort of an accelerated learning curve. If you're going to be somewhere, be there and decide what you want. To exist without having made a decision of what you want out of it will be to discount yourself in time. If I'm doing something and I haven't made a decision of what I want, it's really hard to align my daily behaviors and thoughts around it. I think basing decisions on what you want rather than what people want for you is really important. Then the challenge really is you, whether or not you develop the skills and the mental fortitude to succeed. That's the voice of Mark Lovis, one of the greatest leaders the Cutco Vector Marketing Organization has ever had. As a division manager, Mark's team was number one in the nation an unprecedented four years in a row. As an entrepreneur, Mark led a team of amazing individuals in the founding and building of Truemaker, a successful clothing brand. His journey has had successes and challenges, and at every step along the way, Mark has been a student of life, a mentor to many, and a dynamic source of inspiration. He's now pursuing new challenges and opportunities on his path to great success, and he shares his journey and his lessons with us here today. This is a long-awaited episode with the legendary Mark Lovis. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome, everyone. If you're part of the Cutco Vector audience, you have probably been wondering about since the beginning of this podcast, when is Mark Lovis going to be featured? Because he is one of the all-time Cutco legends. Well, I'm fired up. That day is today. I'm with Mark right now. Mark was in the Cutco business starting back in 1991, started in Sacramento, California, He became a branch manager two years later in Tacoma, Washington, was the number one Silver Cup winning branch manager in the company, became a district manager a couple of years after that, after graduating from Sacramento State University. And um, Mark has had an illustrious vector career. He was in Tacoma initially, moved to Seattle after a little while, became the division manager up there of what was called the North Pacific Division. His division was number one four years in a row, 1998, 99, 2000, 2001. And then Mark became what's called the region sales director. During his years 
running Norpac. He also ran the Intermountain Division at one point, took that division from $1 million up to $5 million in one fell swoop in a year. And when he was the RSD, the Western region was number one four years in a row under his guidance. And he set the tone for what would become 12 consecutive years, number one in the Western region. This guy is one of the all-time greatest legends in the history of Cutco Vector. Here he is today, Mark Lovis. Thanks for making time for the podcast. Of course. Hello. Feeling good. (laughs) All right. Well, it's good to have you back in the fold here, so to speak, for today to share some of your stories and lessons with the Cutco world. Tell us about the Mark Lovis before Cutco. I want people to hear about this. Right. I would just say socially challenged. Um, (laughs) The sort of story that I like to tell is that, you know, the first four jobs I had in high school, I was fired from all four sequentially. And uh, Cutco is really the only people would have me at that point. I was one of those kids who had a lot of social anxiety. I didn't have a ton of friends in school. And then, you know, I was just kind of quiet most of the time, or I was lashing out most of the time, which related to my jobs in high school. One in particular, Taco Bell. It's like, how do you get fired from Taco Bell, right? I mean, I showed up on time. The only problem is I made my name tags up every day. And so, like, one day I was, my name was Buffalo Beef, you know, the next way, Bumalo the Banana. And I would, you know, do the drive through with those names like you know hello it's buffalo beef may i help you (laughs) so so you know that got me fired and then i got fired from the next job making sandwiches because i was eating probably more than i was making and then uh you know i just wasn't uh wasn't great at working but yeah we are kindred spirits with the name (laughs) tags mark what a few years before this when i was working at a movie theater I would always make my name tag be like one of the characters of one of the movies that was out. So I would have like Skeletor on my name tag, you know, or Crocodile Dundee on my name tag or something like that. And uh, my manager finally says to me, uh, hey, you got to have your name on your name tag. So I changed my name tag to hi dot dot dot. I'm Dan. Yeah, you know, because you used (laughs) to be able to make your own name tags, right? So I can relate to the... uh, the uh, funny name tag thing. That's, uh, that's great. You were lucky, though, to, you know, encounter Brad Britton when you came to Cutco and, you know, to have a chance to work with somebody who would be patient and nurturing for you and, you know, kind of helped you along. Yeah, I mean, super fortunate. You know, I was looking, I was looking for a summer job, I had to get a summer job. I saw a job advertising. Yeah, I saw a listing, I showed up, I went through the interview and I was sort of the first job I'd got a job interview I'd gone to where it wasn't just mailing in my time. Right. It was like an opportunity. And that was exciting. That was exciting. And I remember like leaving on cloud nine, really excited about it. Of course, till I got home and then nobody was excited about it, but me. And I remember I even started, you know, for Brad, Brad, I, I actually, the interviews were run by the assistant managers. And when I finally met Brad was when I was a brand new sales rep and, you know, I was thinking about this. Brad was, you know, a lot of fun to work with and he was great at building teams. And one of the things is I was just so impressed by him, right? He was just always so positive. I didn't know people like that, you know, in Sacramento yeah. growing up. I didn't know people that were 100% of the time positive and knew your name and gave you time and attention. And so 
you know, I look back and I just thought about that this morning is I was super impressed by Brad and he was also interested in investing time in me. And that was exciting for me as uh, you know, as a young student, it was like the first time that somebody outside of my family maybe believed in me, right? First time that somebody said you can do something that's challenging. And so Brad really played that role for me, you know, spectacular leader. So it was a good summer, 1991. Yeah. How did you hear about the job? I saw a job listing and, you know, answered the call. And just like everyone else, just got excited about it. Got excited about the idea that I could make money, but I didn't have to show up when they wanted me to. And, you know, at first I took that seriously and I didn't show up at all. And then eventually <laughs> I, something caught my eye. You know, I, I was thinking, what caught my eye? And if somebody was recognized for having a $1,000 day, and I just thought, well, why that person? What's the deal with that person? I think I'm as good as that person. And I decided, well, I guess I need to have a thousand dollar day. And it was just the first time in a job I wanted something. That was like the moment, the first time I wanted something. And, you know, it's like the office can sometimes feel like its own Hollywood, right? It's got its Oscars or its Grammys and, and it's got its structure that you can succeed within. And that was the first thing that caught my eye. And then once I decided to do that and then did it, that was the first time maybe in my life I had set a goal in a job and achieved a goal in a job. Mm -hmm. And that was like, well, wow, you know, you can do something you want. You can decide what you want. You can go get that thing. Yeah. That's awesome. The idea of setting and achieving a goal for the first time. I think a lot of people could relate to that with coming into Cutco. Yeah, especially a job, right? You can do it in sports and school, but especially a job and especially a place where you can make money. I mean, if you think about how most people get treated in student jobs, right? Unless you get lucky and you get that perfect internship, it's it's not necessarily like they're invested in your personal growth and development, right? And right. by the nature of the way the Cutco business is built, it's built on that. It succeeds by the nature of that, that by helping students grow per personally and professionally, the business has positive outcomes. And so I was really a beneficiary of that. Yeah. That's cool to hear. What other key moments uh, stand out from early in your career? Yeah, I mean, that, that was one. I mean, I, I laugh because uh, the one other key moment was when I first started making phone calls, right, and being semi-rejected. You know, uh, I just remember throwing myself down the stairs and sliding all the way down and laying at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> my, da my dad was like, well, you wanted to sell knives. <laughs> this is the game. You're not quitting now. <laughs> and uh it just felt like it just you know rejection in school was hard enough you know and this was just more of it and as i mentioned i didn't have social confidence so you know i was stuttering through everything and it was just an interesting experience right but then what again what i wanted something so i kind of kept coming back right i wanted to see if i could do it yeah but that was a moment and you know and and then i can also remember having uh the second thing I remember is early days, people like John Avila and Jonak Ramachandran and these different people I met at that time that I became friends with. And they were sort of my first friends in life that the friendships were based on a liking kind idea of what we wanted to achieve in life. Like Cucko sort of attracted young people who want to do something different, right? And they're, they're looking for more than the usual. And so you have all these unusual people that 
I was really attracted to. And I found that I had uniquely high quality friendships developing that I hadn't had maybe yet in my life. I had one best friend and then I really didn't kind of get on in high school. And these were my first friends and they were friends based on like quality things. Yeah. And I remember that, you know, uh, and the conversations we were having were like that. Uh, we weren't going off and getting wasted together. We were going off to the Denny's and talking until 2 a.m. about right. life. That was yeah. just so new to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Jonak Ramachandran, that guy yeah. was repping my office. I have lost touch with that guy. Have you, have you heard yeah. from that guy at all? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's the most talented man on earth. <laughs> <laughs> I got another story. I got to get back in touch with that guy somehow. Yeah. So you were a rep that summer of 91. I know you were an assistant manager in 1992. And then you ran a branch in 1993. There was a lot of opportunity on the West Coast and Washington was pretty wide open. And so uh, you had a chance to go up to Tacoma uh, to run your branch, and you ended up being number one branch in the company. How did you flip the switch from the old Mark Lovis into this right. champion manager, dynamic leader that you became? There's a couple key moments, you know. Working with Brad Britton is like, uh, he's, he is the most nurturing human out there, but he's also really honest. And he, he can be honest because he's invested in you and mm-hmm. has built a lot of trust. And I just remember a moment when I wanted to be his assistant manager and he was saying, I don't know about it. I don't know if you're going to be one of the people I would need. I was leagues away from branch. There was no way that was going to happen in 1992. And so we were at some seminar outside, you know, seminar like Anthony Robbins or something like that. And I came up to a group he was standing in and I was, I just kind of butt in and started talking awkwardly. And then everybody sort of dissipated. And then he looked at me and said, you are the reason they all walked away. (laughs) And it was like, you know, like all the blood drained from me. I almost fainted. You know, I was like stumbling (laughs) off. (laughs) It's like, you know, you have to maybe listen, maybe, you know, he didn't even go follow on with that. He just said that. And then I was left to sit with it. And I thought, you know, why? Right. And then it was enough of a moment that I just decided, okay. That's it. I need to learn how to talk to people. I need to learn how to make, mm. or like how to be social. And so I said, I, I'm going to start listening more and paying attention. And when I write things down, I'm just going to try to do them rather than know them. Cause you know, it's every, like the one thing about like conspiracy theorists. And I just think if there's a group of people who accumulate knowledge, and then there's a group of people who exercise knowledge, you know, and you don't need to read a lot of books, you need to read a few books and actually do that, right, and apply them to your life. And, and that was sort of the moment where I was like, I'm going to apply these things. So I, I took the how to win friends and influence people, I turned that book into three by five cards. And I carried them with me. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom at the time said, what's going on? Because you're like being normal now. Like you seem positive. You, you seem to be changing. Is this for real or is this just an act? And I'm like, no, I got this book <laughs> and I'm doing this book. And that was like a, the first moment. The, the second moment was in 1991 at the end of the summer. I saw you speak and this is the impression it had on me. I don't know if this number, you know, this number, but 311321, right? That was your branch total, Dan, yep. in, in 1991. 
right? And I just remember it. They were like 311,321. And then you gave a message. I don't know what you said in, in Oregon. I just remember the aura. And it was like our Oscars for the company. And it was like our opportunity to recognize people who've achieved something. And, and it just stood out to me of like, I want that. I want to be that kind of person who can give that kind of talk. You told, you gave the speech about Greg LeMond finishing in France, you know, and I still get excited about that. And I just thought, I want to be able to speak like that. I want to be able, to, I want to do that. And so those were the moments that sort of propelled me over the next two years to learn the things I needed to learn. And the first thing I needed to learn was to give speeches. Like I could not, this might be a surprise to some, but I was like at, in college trying to give a speech that first year and I was shaking, holding the piece of paper. And this is no joke. By the end of the summer of being an assistant, I'd done it enough. I'd developed some confidence and then, you know, kind of figured it out enough to where I was less nervous, right? And I had that skill under my belt and I had some basic skills of interviewing and working with people under my belt. And so it was really those first early moments of like, I want to change and give up who I am for who I could become. And then two is I want to be that. I want to, I want to be a top branch and. And then I just had so much built up insecurity that I could do it that I thought, well, I don't know if I'm talented, but I at least know that I can do the things necessary. Like if I go out and do everything they tell me to do, at least I won't fail. And there's a chance I could be number one, you know, the top person, even though nobody else sees me that way. One of those things I haven't mentioned is early in school, people sort of saw me as the troublemaker, right? Mm -hmm. I got in a lot of fights in high school and like, like weekly. And I was in the principal's office weekly, suspended often. And I just never felt comfortable in a school environment. And I just remember thinking their impression of me is not necessarily me. I'm just, I, I don't understand it, but it's just, I just knew there was like a meta communicator. Like I was telling myself, I, I know what they think I am, but I'm not that I'm something different. And I felt the same way in Cutco. Like, even though people believed in me, I don't think people saw me as somebody who could be a top branch. And I just thought that's fine. I'm just going to focus on developing the skills and the mindset and make the plan and do all the preparation and leave nothing, you know, no stone left unturned. And I ended up creating like a document, which was like hundred plus pages of an agenda for everything in my calendar for the four month period of the summer. Mm -hmm. And so I had the summer planned out and I had that document and I was like, I'm just going to do these things. You know, I'm going to do the program and then we'll see what happens. And so that was really for me, like the first time in my life, I spent eight months preparing for something. If you think about it, a year and a half and then driving up to Tacoma, Washington in my Chevy Sprint with three cylinders, listening to you, Dan, on audio, it wasn't that exciting because I fell asleep. I remember and I woke up against the guardrail at Shasta Lake <laughs> and I think you were running an interview and I was listening to it on tape over and over again, starting at 5 a.m. That's how like. Ner nervous i was i was like just gonna over prepare right like i'm not gonna waste a single minute of so i'm driving i had the audio cassette tape player on my lap and i was driving up to tacoma washington and i was 20 and uh i crashed my windows blew out all my stuff in my life sort of half of it fell out i just kept going <laughs> and then I got off on like one exit that looked right and I turned right and there was an auto glass shop and they put a piece of plastic in and that was my car for summer. And that began for me what was sort of, you know, an accelerated learning curve 
the most accelerated learning curve I've ever had in my life. It was like first time leaving home, opening, first time opening a business, first time being on my own and going to Tacoma, Washington and just, you know, living in a room at the time that was, I rented from a senior citizen, the second room in her house in Tacoma for 150 a month and didn't have a phone. There were no cell phones. And it was just like, okay, I've got food and I've got an office and I've got this business and let's see if I can do this. And it was just a time of just rapid and tremendous growth. Uh, it's just like, I can't, I, I thought about it today. Like uh, the first day I ran interviews, we put out all this advertising and uh, we got lucky, you know, 116 people showed up for an interview. So there I am. Like, I still had my braces on, you know, I still had my full braces and I was getting them into a retainer at the time. Like I, I was like really nervous about that. And I just remember 116 people showed up and it was just a show, you know, like a mess. And I remember I had uh, U2 Octane Baby playing on the radio, actually. And I was just blown away. There was a line down the building. All the other tenants were concerned. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> and then it proceeded to be like 100 people a day walked in for like the entire week. And, and I, I, you know, it wasn't that I was perfect at doing anything. It was that I made sure we did everything right, right? I made sure we put out the advertising. I just didn't leave anything to chance. And, right. And, uh, you know, I like to define my first summer as like failure at scale. Mm. Like every day it felt like I was failing all day long. And that was the first time maybe also that I felt like you could succeed while you're failing all day long. Like it was just normal. Like some people weren't interested in working with Kekos. Some people were. And at that scale, that's a lot of people on right. either side of the equation. And so it was just me and then eventually Mark Stanfield, my assistant manager. And uh, we were just like overwhelmed with the number of people coming in and overwhelmed with the experience. But, uh, you know, it was the only time in my life, uh, maybe even to this, maybe not to this day, if you look at True Maker recently, but I'd say I gave every single ounce of what I had for four straight months. And I just, everything I had was focused on one thing, like my personal Olympics. And that was the most satisfying thing coming out of that summer. And the, and it was like, uh, you go in one kind of person coming out another. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, a great testament to why, you know, the branch program is so awesome for so many people. I love what you said about give up who I am for who I could become. That that's what, you know, I know that became a, a mantra of yours that a lot of people have heard, but you were willing to do that. Like you could see that there was something more that you could become, right? That interaction with Brad, where he helped you see that, even though people at, at school like had an impression of you that was not great, you knew that impression of me, that's not me. Somehow you were able to, to understand there was a greater potential for you that was waiting to be unlocked. There's another mantra of yours that, that I've heard a bunch of times, and it's like, um, you would say, don't, underestimate the challenge uh, and don't overestimate yourself and right. that that concept would cause you to prepare for the things that you're taking on right right and you know all that personal growth and professional growth of being a branch growth comes from the challenge of the experience right and so at the end of the summer i did a little bit of an examination of how did i end up becoming the number one branch even though i failed at scale every day and what happened there? And I realized that my insecurity, my deep-seated insecurity was what drove me to over-prepare. Mm -hmm. But I also noticed some of the top 
salespeople who became branches did not succeed at the same level. And they sort of carried their success in sales or being assistants or their manager's affection for them into the idea that they would succeed as a branch manager. Mm. And it's a natural environment, right? There's nobody's going to do it for you. And so I, by nature of being insecure, overprepared, meaning I underestimated myself and I overestimated the challenge. And that drove an extreme level of focus, concentration, preparation, and discipline, right? Yeah, exactly. Because I committed to the goal. So if I was going to align my behavior to that goal, I had to do that. The idea of could I or could I not wasn't even in the equation. It was just like, I'm going to do it. So I must over-prepare. And I must think this is going to be the hardest thing I'm ever going to do in my life. So I raised the stakes really, really, really high. Like, this is like climbing Everest. This is like, I may not make it back. You know, it was like life and death stakes. And when you take it to that degree, you can get a lot out of yourself. Yeah. Awesome. So after that summer, I know you went back to school, you graduated Sacramento State, you went back up to Washington, became a district manager. I can remember visiting you in 1997 in Seattle and just observing you because you were doing so well you know, it was a chance for us to be able to learn from each other. And, you know, I was there to watch you that time. And then you became division manager. And as I referenced earlier, you knocked out of the park, number one, four years in a row, plus one of those years, building a second division from one to 5 million people like Jeremy Bell, who went out to Utah, you know, to go open up that division where part were there. What were some of the keys to building a perennial national champion division? Right. I mean, I think at the core of building the division, well, let's just start by saying, look, I, there was only myself and one other person when I started as a division manager. And so the business was going to get built on the branch manager opportunity, right? Our ability yep. to, f- to identify talented people, nurture them through the arc of becoming branch managers and then them succeeding as a branch. But I thought, well, if I can be a successful branch, I can teach anybody to do it because these people have talents I didn't have, confidence I didn't have. Yeah, And so I came into it with a deep-seated belief that anybody can do this if they execute the right things. Mm. And then the second thing, I, I, I thought a lot about this ahead of today. And the second thing that I thought about is I had a tremendous sense of responsibility for my people's success. I thought if, they're, if, if I'm going to say I'm their division manager, I'm responsible for their personal success and the success of the division, which means they're going to make money. They're going to succeed. If, and I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. I'm going to make sure they do. And maybe we can bring some of what I did as a branch to the division, which is just executing the most assumed things. You know, whatever people assume is an obvious thing to do, they think everybody's doing it. And usually in business, those are the things that need to be executed to the highest degree. And if they are, you'll succeed. There's great businesses that get built on people just doing what they say they're going to do. Right. right? I'm going to open this business, ship you wine, you're going to like it. And I'll respond to your emails. Now you got a business. And with a branch, or with a division, I found that wasn't always true. Like when I looked around at the environment, I didn't see people consistently doing what they said they were going to do. Right. And as a branch, I know that because I consistently showed up and did the PDI or did the one-on-ones and did the interviews and did the training. And I didn't miss a beat. 
And as a division manager, I thought, well, if I do the same as a division manager, I prepare for every meeting and I make my, make sure my people understand the same things I did, then we will also succeed. And I think that was at the core, but it's a lot like being a football coach, you know, like I relate being a division manager closest to being a college coach. You identify talent, build relationships early over sometimes a four-year arc, right? And then you have a seasonal event, meaning you have months of preparation, and then you go for a season, like football mm-hmm. season or basketball season or lacrosse season or gymnastics. And so you have this preparation period with young people, and you have this talent identification recruiting period, and then you have this period of execution where it's just all on, right? It's like the, the gun is fired and you got to run as fast as you can. Right. And so I really just, as a division manager thought, okay, what's the first thing I got? The first thing I, I looked back and said, we had a clear vision. Like if I didn't talk to somebody, run a meeting without telling people what we were going to do and asking them to collaborate. So even if they were brand new people, what do you think that would look like? What kind of role would you play? And I would make sure that we had a clear vision that everybody was a part of collaborating around, which was to become the number one division from two people. Actually, at the time, the best division did like 2.8. And we were like, we're going to be the first $5 million division. We're going to do a million dollar month. Those were our like goals. And then early on, we only had two people. So we identified great people like the Ezra Snyders of the world and Aaron Loves of the world. These are names that are just popping up and Sean Godfrey's and just different people that were out there. And you'd meet them, you know, a year or two or three before they were going to be a manager. You know, and we just paid attention. I, th- I think one of the best things we did was we identified talent in the field and built relationships early. And then what I kind of had going for me is I just admired people like I admired Brad Britton. So when I'd meet with somebody like Isaac Tolman when he was 17 at the Percos in Vancouver, Washington, I'd say, man, this guy is incredible. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to, I want to know this guy. So the same thing that brought me excitement and starting as a sales rep in Cutco is the same thing that excited me about meeting people that weren't too far off from my age that I was inspired by or admired in some way. And that's how I knew I wanted to work with them. What I wasn't looking for is followers. I wasn't looking for people who are going to agree with me or be like me or be like the other successful people in the division. I was just identifying strengths and saying, I can build with that. I can make them great. And when I, and there was a large group of people I admired and identified and built relationships with early. And if you think about the compounding impact of that week over week, month over month, year over year, it's like a juggernaut. So we had really clear focused skill sets, which we all understood. And then we had an ability to focus on identify talent and develop people. Mm -hmm. And when you put those together year over year, you're going to end up with some pretty dynamic results, right? Yeah. There's something about the idea of a dynamic and powerful leader who's going somewhere, taking a young person and saying, hey, I want you to come with me. We can do this. You can do this. Right. And investing yourself into them. I think that most leaders can relate to the idea of like looking for the talent, maybe even seeing who the talent is and what their strengths are. But then taking that talent and really helping them manifest it into great results. Like that's something different that you did so so extraordinarily well that not everybody does. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, what is talent, right? Like what was I identifying? And what I wasn't looking for is the cool kid. 
and a lot of, like what school they went to uh you know that they're attractive charismatic these things i wasn't looking for that you know i wasn't looking for men over women right i would look back and think we had a, a division powered by women <laughs> that were amazing right. we had so, all, over half our division at times uh and yeah i can remember gene powell and yuli kim and and uh jen wright yeah dana blizzard yeah. and just all the different yeah. and i was just looking for authentic self-aware people people who i could have a conversation with about life that was interesting and people that uh maybe had virtue is another way to put it like they were honest open what you see is what you get kind of thing and then i would also look for they have some sign that they can be extraordinary like they've done something extraordinary in their lives so i would grasp onto that like somebody was a bow and arrow champion when they were 15 or somebody was you know they have this ability this unique ability and they've done something before which shows me that they could have an extraordinary result here or they're going to do extraordinary things and so i would celebrate that one of our best people brian buck he was a writer and a director of theater and i was just so enamored with that right and i'm like if he can do that you know this guy someday brian you're going to be incredible at that I mean, who knows? Let's make this the launching pad for it, right? And mm -hmm. and that was my feeling. I was just it wasn't just that they were good here. It's that they had extraordinary talents or they've shown glimpses of extraordinary behavior in the past. So not to take it too far, but you have somebody you can have a conversation with that you admire, and then you have somebody you see glimpses of extraordinary, you know, efforts and behavior and, and or uniqueness. I remember you, Dan, you do that. You know, I, these details, I'd watch you do it. Like, oh, this person can eat a lot of hot wings. How does that person have that mental power? Right. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> wild. And I would say, okay, if that person can do that, I want to know that person. And it wasn't just about, I want to know them now. I want to know them when they're out of power. These are lifelong relationships. It's funny you say, it. I talked to Gene Powell this week, I talked to Yuli Hardy last week, you know, talked to Isaac Holman a few months ago. These are people that are still in my life today. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So you were a champion branch. You developed, as far as I can remember, at least two other champion branches, maybe three. And Isaac Tolpin was a Silver Cup branch manager. Ryan Casey was a Silver Cup branch manager. I feel like Ian McKenzie was a Silver Cup branch manager, wasn't he? Or something close to it. Yeah. Eugene or something close to it. Yeah. yeah and then, um, uh, so, Brian, I mean, you, Jason Skillport. Yeah. So you developed other kind of like real champions during your time, uh, you know, in building the division, like that's a, uh, it's such an awesome track record to see. How does that work? How do you, how do you take others who, uh, you know, if they were working with somebody else, they might otherwise be average or good or even great, but how do you flip that switch for them, help them to become champions? So we had, we had a winning program, right? Like football, we had a winning program. And mm -hmm. it, even though if it was my winning program, we had a program that was winning. And we said, if you do these things and follow this program and you, uh, you will have your best shot at success. And then the challenge really is you, whether or not you develop the skills and the mental fortitude to succeed as a branch manager. It's funny. I saw Bill Walsh speak at a dinner. It was like this small dinner. And he talked about mental conditioning, kicking his players off the bus making them run the two minute drill when they were tired and wanted to sleep. Even professional athletes with tremendous clout 
and in some cases fame, he had them do these things that were sort of mentally challenging and kind of beyond, you know, beneath them in a way it felt mm-hmm. right. And to put them in the situation when they're just uncomfortable and to see if they can perform in that situation. And I think we did a lot of the same things. We focused on skill development, but also mental development. And in our preparation process, we worked on both. If you were in our process, you were loved and believed in. And that's something is I always saw it in and for people. And we always talked about seeing it in people and seeing it for people. Like you have to build a case for why people can succeed. That's a big shift. You know, I was, when I was in, I went to business school later in uh, USC and we had a leadership class and they talk about selecting the right people. And I always said, well, maybe it's like filtering for the right people. And, you know, instead of looking for them to prove it to you, you're, making a case for them. You're investigating them and looking for the pieces that are winning instead of looking for the pieces that are losing. Mm-hmm. And fast forward years later as a startup founder, it's really easy when you're interviewing extremely talented people for an engineering role or design role or executive role to look for the reasons why not. But I think a big part of if you take a big part of developing talent and getting the most out of people would be to look at, well, I'm having an authentic conversation with this person. I'm impressed with them in some way. I see some like glimpses of extraordinary outcomes. And now I'm going to start building a case for them, why they could succeed. And then I think especially in Cutco, in a place like that you're developing people over the years, you're not there to be their critic, right? You're there to be their believer. And you're there as their believer to also be honest with them. And so just like Brad was with me, we had built relationships that were not in doubt. And so we could be extremely honest with each other. There was a lot of trust and emotional safety, right? Within the division. Mm. You know, something I want to say about that is I want to say two things about leadership or running a division, which I think is like a great sandbox for leadership, right? Because it's building relationships over a span of time sometimes four plus years before they become a manager or sometimes four plus years as a manager. And consistency is a big part of that. Meaning what I said I was going to do, I did. I can remember one time I showed up late for a meeting and my managers were just flipping out. Like that was the end of the year. (laughs) And we were just never late, never unprepared. We consistently showed up and delivered what we said we were going to deliver, consistently delivered our winning program and consistently saw the great and people. Not that we didn't make mistakes, but when we did, we were consistently honest, self-aware, transparent, but also consistently delivered. You know, mm-hmm. and if I look around at the division managers at the time, I think that was rare, right? It could be as young people, very inconsistent. And depending on the stresses of the day, as a startup founder, it's much more difficult to be consistent. But that's what people rely on from you as their leader, right? A consistent relationship. And the second thing is our relationships weren't built on party they weren't built on like young people that you know the, the kind of the bandwidth of hanging out with young people is like a lot of learning but also a lot of fun and partying and these types of things in college and i was young too and we could have based our relationships on those things but there was one thing over my entire tenure with cutco all of our relationships were based on what we wanted to do together we wanted to succeed we wanted to grow and we wanted to do extraordinary things because if we're going to be here let's make it worth our time Right. And and be anywhere, right? If you're gonna be doing anything, you gotta decide why you're there. You might as well make it worth your time. You don't wanna mail the years in, right? Because pretty soon you don't know where you are. You don't know where the time went. And our relationships were one hundred percent about 
their success and personal and professional development first, and then our success as a division second. And conversations on the periphery of that were rare. We would talk a lot about other things, but the basis of our relationship was that. Like, mm-hmm. I, they didn't want me to be their buddy. I might have wanted them to be my buddy, but I, that's not my role as a leader. My role was to build them as people and build this division. And that's what they counted on me for. And I'm going consistent to consistently deliver that. I only know that's important now because when I talk to ex cuckoo people from different parts of the country and I hear about their experiences, some of them make my jaw drop, right? And it's like, you can be lucky to show up at the right karate school. You know, just because a karate organization is good doesn't mean you're getting the first rate instructor every single time. You could work in any massive organization, you're going to get different experiences based on the hiring manager or based on the leader. And at least I felt like in our division, they were getting a first rate experience that was idealistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the people that have worked with you would agree with that. They would definitely say that uh, they got a special experience in working with you as the leader. You've talked about uh, the clear vision for the organization. Uh, You've talked about the sense of responsibility for others' success. You know, consistently delivering a winning program, that combination of mental conditioning and skill development, uh, all the relationship building that went on. Does anything else stand out as some of the key roles or responsibilities of a great leader? I think you have to make, you know, this is something I've only learned. Sometimes when you, you when you think you know it all, you don't know anything at all, right? Like, like coming out of Cutco, I felt like, man, I just know leadership, right? Like, I know it all. But once I started a business with other types, new types of pressures, financial pressures, like raising tens of millions of dollars of capital and having a board of directors and having multiple aspects of a corporation, they don't actually quite understand what their jobs are, right? You don't quite understand engineering. You don't quite understand design or product development, but you need to recruit talented people. That's leadership, your ability to recruit people into a role that they actually are going to succeed at. Like mm-hmm. making sure your process is transparent enough that people that opt in, the filter, they opt in and the people you select are actually going to win with you. The second part of that is creating a place where people can get their job done. That's like maybe the most important thing I've learned as a leader of a business is where create a place where people can do good work, which means if the person next to me is not held accountable and every time I ask for something, they don't deliver it on time. Suddenly my timelines are off. And I can't get my job done, right? So you have to create an accountable organization, clear roles with clear objectives and a shared common vision. And if you can do these things, and then maybe even something I've learned is protect them from the outside, protect an organization from outside distractions, right? Uh, like fundraising or like dealing with politics or the board or these types of things, then it, you're creating a place where people can do good work. They can be focused. They can feel good about themselves. They can be open and transparent. And an organization that is about people's success, not just about the company succeeding. Now, these are things that I, I consider like leading a business. And they're things that I failed at, at scale with at Truemaker, meaning I thought I had it down. And I, I remember saying, sometimes you think you're this and you're not. You're not in a different circumstance, always the same person you were in another. And so I thought, you know, sometimes when you're learning everything, it's important to not think you know everything. Let's talk a little bit about Truemaker because I think that people can gain a lot from hearing about your experience. So this is a uh, 
uh, built to fit direct sales model clothing company that you founded and built. Tell us about uh, that journey. Yeah. So after I went to business school and just to see what that was all about, and I had kind of had a few jobs. I ran revenue for three day blinds on a private equity turnaround. I had some really interesting experience. I decided I wanted to start a company and I had several job offers on the table. And one was from a company called Bonobos. And it was in 2010 when Bonobos was just getting started. It was 15 to 20 people in a room in New York city. And I had a high paying job offer. And this job offer was basically paying nothing and doing bankless work. But I would be around a really dynamic startup team in an, that was funded by class A firms, top tier firms. And I decided because I want to run a company, this is probably the right move for me. I'm going to be around the right kind of people and I'm going to be uh, learning how to start a company. And so I went and did that. And I created a concept and program there called the Guide Shops. My job is to come up with alternative ways to sell other than online to bring down the cost of acquisition and raise the lifetime value of a customer because they saw kind of the writing on the wall that online acquisition alone wasn't going to work. What are we going to do? And so we created actually well before it became popularized, the idea of a multi-channel approach with guide shots where you don't carry inventory. You just acquire customers and provide service. And then you send the product they order out. Right. And in that experience, I saw that guys really didn't like shopping to a degree that was more extreme than I had imagined. See, I liked, you know, Dan, I liked buying suits. It was like part of the fun, you know, and, I liked, oh, you like the first time I wore cool clothes or business clothes. You know, I showed up my interview in Cucko and shorts with a rayon shirt with short sleeves and a tie. Right. So it was like Belle Bib DeVoe. It was like new edition. It was like, you know, that era. Right. And when I started dressing well and people complimented me, it impacted me. And I thought that's creating a level of confidence. And so I became a fan of clothing. So I really saw that most men weren't like that. And they just wanted to solve clothing, not shop for clothing. Mm-hmm. And that if you could get their measurements and they could just reorder and know it's going to fit, then that would be a delightful experience. And so I left Bonobos to start TrueMaker. Mm. And actually, the Bonobos team invested in TrueMaker as well as a lot of different contacts that came through that. We raised money from Ben Rock and RE Ventures and these different firms and the Box Group with David Tish and these people I was always impressed by. And it was a real, real experience. Raising money, by the way, on a deck is like probably like pitching a script in Hollywood or something. It's, it's, it's like lots of rejection and lots of smart debates and lots of corporate development before you ever get started. Every meeting, yep. you learn something and you continue to develop your deck and the idea of your business based on all the feedback you're getting. Mm-hmm. And so we raised a couple million bucks and got started in New York City and then moved out to San Francisco and you know, did a million our first year, four million our second year in four cities, and then, uh, you know, got to just under 10 million our third year. And so it was a real ramp up and an exciting time. You know, TrueMaker was a menswear brand where everybody gets a stylist. Once you get measured and fitted, you'll always have the contact of a stylist where you can just order online and it comes built for you or size for you. So we sold like ready to wear sweaters and denim, where We just knew their size, right? So we did that. The, the business ended up being, it started off like a rocket ship, but then there were just definitely like some fundamental flaws in the model that we had to solve. And the business had some challenges while it was successful for customers. We had some challenges and like, we felt it could be 
it was either going to be a model, like a sales model, or it was going to be a brand. And we had to make a decision between the two. And we chose for it to be a brand. And so we started building out stores and doing these types of things. And, it, and at that point, it became a massive undertaking and project that we weren't prepared for at the time. And so we ended up selling the company. And after, I guess, five years, and you know, it was probably one of the most, it, it, was, it was my second place experience next to being a branch, right, of personal growth and development over those years. And right. You know, it's I. We made what I think to be the best product in the universe for men at the right price, and then we, I built a spectacular team. And these people work at top tier companies today, and I hear often like, "Man, you had a great team there. All these people are great, right?" But no matter, I would say that a couple of the experiences that I learned from was one is you do have to create a place where people can get their job done. You can't do everything all at once. You have to focus. Mm -hmm. And two is I always had this quote that I used to say in Kako, which was if you're at the crossroads, you know, you try to choose the unusual path, right? Take the road less traveled. And I used to kind of blend that into the idea of like choose the more difficult path, right? And I think there's a difference between choosing a path to make it difficult on yourself and your team and to purposely fall on your face, right? Because you got to earn it, right? And to make it difficult. Or on the other kind of path would be, to choose the path you really want, even though there's risks, I think that's the right tone of what I was saying. Mm. But I think that bled into over the years of, well, this is the most difficult path, so let's eat some lead bullets and go do that. And I, and I think that trying to boil the ocean and do too much made it difficult on our people to do their jobs. And, and I think that was one of the reasons it didn't continue to scale. So looking back, I mean, we have a great brand. It still exists today. It's just run by another owner and business. and but. You know, I think uh, next time around, there's a lot to learn from that experience. Yeah, awesome. Well, what's uh, what's next? What are you most excited about right now? Well, I'm working with Dave Durand. Um, if you'll remember from 1991, yeah, we competed. Uh, yeah, one an old Vector alum. He started a company called Best Version Media, and I'm running all things digital at Best Version Media, and so. Um, we have a couple projects right now. We have BBM Sport, which is a place where local sports is celebrated like something like ESPN. So it's a place where high school, college, and club and leagues, like little leagues, can go submit content and also uh, follow all the different aspects of local sports, which I think is pretty cool. And then I'm also the CEO of Myopolis. And Myopolis is a software platform for small business, which takes all the forms of communication and puts it in one inbox. So allowing a small business person to have the tools that a big business utilizes to convert leads or to generate reorders. Mm -hmm. And Myopolis right now, actually, we're just launching and we have a program for early beta users. And so something if anyone knows somebody in a small business and wants to take advantage of that, they should check it out. And Myopolis Mark is a subsidiary of BBM? Yeah. Myopolis is an independent subsidiary. So I'm the CEO. We have a separate team. And we're completely focused on building a software business. Nice. And you're getting to work closely with Dave Duran, who's brilliant. Yeah, Dave is a force. It's been really great. Actually, it's been a joy. It's been a good good timing for me to go back and work with somebody I've known so long and trust at that level, but also brings, I would say, like an entrepreneurial energy to bear that's absolutely unique. 
Great. Uh, and yeah, it's been really satisfying. I've learned a lot. Great. I also have a side project, which is my passion project. And those of you who know me will know I love wine. And over the years, I've learned that I love like wine that uh, is the right price and the right has the right health profile, meaning I can drink a lot of it and not feel bad the next day. And so natural <laughs> wine for me, it's become a passion. And uh, so I started a wine club called Good Weather Wine. And that soft launches next week as well, meaning we're just telling friends about it. And Good Weather Wine is, you know, they sign up, we test thousands of bottles and we send you a selection every month, whether it's six, 12 on a monthly or bi-monthly or quarterly basis. And every wine has been tested to be, you know, additive and sugar-free. And uh, which is the way great wine is made anyway. But so we're having fun with that. What, what type of price points? Uh, it's well, basically, it's one fifty for six, and just under three hundred for twelve. And you can get it on any type of uh, timetable you like. So just over twenty bucks a bottle, which is what we find to be like what you kind of need to pay to get this level of quality, right? Right. And so, but yeah, we're still trying to keep it in the range of like a daily drinking. Yeah, the kind of bottle I would open up every night at home. Yeah, you know, it's funny about this is, you, you know, I used to buy $100 plus bottles and I used to buy $50 plus bottles. And the more I've learned about wine, the more I learned I can find that sweet spot at 20 to $30. Right. And I can find incredible wines. And now we're just bringing that to our customers. Well, uh, that's cool. Uh, good weather wine. It's right. I am directly squarely in your wheelhouse as a customer awesome. because I have a box of wine show up at my house at least yeah. once a month i'm definitely opening more than 12 bottles of wine per month so uh, a lot more <laughs> so my my wine consumption has gone up here during this year of uh, 2020 yeah. and lockdown and uh, it, uh i'm definitely always interested in in uh good stuff at that reasonable price point so it's cool yeah. well yeah, that's awesome fun. yeah it's great to hear you have some good things that you're hatching right now Mark, uh, you know, you know, the Cutco Vector audience to this day still really well. Uh, is there any other advice that you would have or insights you want to share before we wrap this up? I mean, sure. Uh, thinking back to what made it a good experience for me or like a life changing experience. I, I just think if you're going to be somewhere, be there and decide what you want. And so no matter what part of your experience you're in at Cutco, whether you're brand new or you're 10 years in, to exist without having made a decision of what you want out of it will be to discount yourself in time. And I think that is really important. And I found that to be as I've done lots of different things, if I'm doing something and I haven't made a decision of what I want, it's really hard to align my daily behaviors and thoughts around it. So people, I used to say like, I don't know whose quote this is. Discipline is remembering what you want. But why would you remember? So discipline, meaning taking the right actions, maybe choosing the right behaviors, like being disciplined, thinking in the right ways, all these things. Why would you do that? Because you want something. So if you haven't taken the time to clearly define what you want at Cutco, well, period, then really that's probably that's the limiting factor. That's what has been the gate to getting the most out of yourself. And if you could just decide whatever it is, even if it's just for the year, and I always committed to Cutco a year at a time, or after that branch experience, to me, once I graduated college, that's when it became a year at a time, maybe two years. I didn't really worry about if it was my life, you know, decisions. You know, it's funny, 
when you're young, a year is a larger portion of your life. Right. So it feels everything you do feels like everything, right? Like it feels like you're making massive decisions. And yeah, your early decisions could dictate your future life, right? The thoughts you're having are going to compound over time, the behaviors. And that's one of the great things of being around a positive environment like Tucko is those things are going to have a positive influence on what you do next. It's going to compound daily and weekly, but it's not life or death, right? Like, and as you get older, time starts accelerating and you just realize how true that is. Now I feel like life's slipping away. Like now I've lived, you could say a half or two thirds of my life, time flies, (laughs) but a year used to feel like forever. And so the decisions I was making when I was young felt like forever. And so I would just say, if you're in Cutco now, especially if you're a younger person, the idea of just making a decision. And then second is that decision I made to go work with Bonobos was based on the people and was based on what I was going to learn and was based on what I had an idea of what I eventually wanted to do. I think basing decisions on what you want rather than what people want for you you know, out in your outside life is really important because I think a lot of people in my life would say, why not just take that high paying gig? Why would you go work for this startup? And I think for me, it was because I really want to keep growing, but I also need to move in a direction that is aligned with what I want. And every day you put in that time and it's not aligned, it's sort of deteriorates your personal solidarity. And yeah. so uh, that's dramatic, I guess, but that's how I feel. And so, yeah, I think when you make a decision, it serves to orient your talents, your focus, your discipline, your decision making. Awesome. Sage advice. Sage advice for sure there, Mark. Very good. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, man, this has been awesome. It's great reconnecting with you in this yeah. way. As I've mentioned to you, your messages flip the switch and advanced training six as we jokingly called it when we first put it out uh, there those messages are still consumed to this day by people in vector regularly i don't know how many listens you've gotten but it's got to be in the tens of thousands by now and um you're uh, you're you're an all-time cutco legend well respected by everyone and uh, we, we're, we're excited to see the great things that will come uh, for you and your life as you continue to move forward as the dynamic and powerful leader that you are. So thanks so much for being willing to share here on the podcast today. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right. Yes. The great Mark Lovis, everyone. Man, that was a fun conversation for me to have. I hope you all really enjoyed that one. You know, Mark described being what he said, what he called socially challenged when he was much younger. And I can certainly relate to that. And I think that everybody at some level can relate to the 20-year-old you. It's not necessarily who you want to be to be able to achieve all of your goals and all of your dreams. I think we all realize that there's something more that we all want to be. And whatever age you are, you should still be looking to grow and evolve in your life. And to be able to do that, it's important to be to see more of ourselves. And Mark described that the impression other people had of him was not him. He didn't think it was him. And also, it's important to be able to have people around us that are investing into us and helping us to evolve. And, and uh, Mark had that great first mentor in the vector business with Brad Britton. Mark talked about 
taking the How to Win Friends and Influence People book and putting the ideas on three by five cards. And one of the things I thought about when I heard that is the power of repetition uh, in our lives. The repetition of good ideas is what causes those ideas to become internalized so that they're a part of who we are so that you know when it's necessary for us to deliver on those ideas in terms of saying the right thing doing the right thing taking the right action having the right thought it all comes out more easily when it's inside when mark became a leader he felt a sense of responsibility for others success and if you're a leader of any sort i would encourage you to think about why are your people working well we work so that we can have the life that we want the lifestyle that we want, the experiences and opportunities that we want outside of work. That's why we work. We work to live, not the other way around. And so a great leader, therefore, should be not just helping people with their job, but are you also helping people with their life, with their vision, with the personal traits and characteristics that are going to help them have what they want in life. Mark talked about teaching people where there would be skill development, but there would also be mental conditioning. And as I look at the world of Vector today and the attempt to streamline a lot of what we do in our Vector business, sometimes I feel like the, the side of mental conditioning and mental training is one of those things that sort of gets cut out because we're also focused on helping people with their skill development, but we lose sight of that other piece of the puzzle that is a necessary element of success. Make sure that's a part of what you're helping people with if you are a leader. I love the last advice Mark had of just wherever you are, be there and decide what you want. That was so powerful. We will link in our show notes to Mark's businesses that are soft launching here soon, Myopolis and Good Weather Wines, so that you can learn more about those if you want. I encourage you to connect with Mark on social media and so you can follow him and the things that he shares. And of course, on changinglivespodcast.com, you can sign up to receive resources from all of our guests. There's a lot of good stuff that's going to be coming your way if you are signed up on there. So check that out. One great tool that you can use to help develop the people on your team is the Core Values Index, or CVI, which is the most reliable personality assessment ever created. I've arranged for our listeners to get a free CVI assessment by visiting erep.com slash e slash DC. It takes less than 10 minutes to complete and you'll get your results immediately. And you'll also have an option to upgrade your report to a detailed assessment that will blow you away with what it teaches you about yourself and about how to better interact with others. So check it out. Again, it's erep.com slash e slash DC. I hope you enjoyed hearing from the legendary Mark Lovis today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. 
You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 